thank you very much, John. And I can assure you that a compliment from John, by the way, is something that we used to treasure at the TUC because he was <laughs> highly respected by TUC staff, which can't be said of all the members of the General Council, I'm afraid. But enough of that. Uh, simply to say that I, I, my period of office, as it were, doing all this kind of thing at the TUC ran through the, the sort of tail end of the major government uh, through into the Blair years um, and even beyond that into Gordon Brown's tenureship and I left just as the Tories were really I was there at the during the coalition government as well so if anyone has any odd questions about why things happened in a particular way at the TUC I might be able to help but that's not going to be my subject today I've been asked um, to speak as a member of the Institute for Employment Rights uh, executive uh, which I'm very happy to do uh, and I'm going to do one commercial and one only what I'm going to say is contained in a much more erudite and more lengthy way in the Manifesto for Labour Law, which the Institute for Employment Rights published about a year ago. And I think I can proudly say that some of the recommendations in this turned up in the Labour Party's uh, very successful manifesto. So uh, I think we're on a bit of a roll there. I can't give you copies. I was strictly told not to bring copies for people because the IER relies entirely on funding from trade unions. It's not very well off. It does a fantastic amount of really important research on the kind of interface between the law uh, and employment relations and how you can move things forward in a sensible way. Um, but they would like you to buy copies of this, which you can do by going onto their website. That's quite enough commercials from me. But it is, it's a very good read. Um, and there's some quite controversial stuff in there as well. So I won't uh, shy away from just quickly going through those two. What we did, I think, was very much premised on what everyone has observed and economists, academics um, throughout the country about the huge changes that are taking place in the world of work today and the nature and the role um, of employment. There are now 31 million workers in the UK, many on extraordinarily complicated multi-contracts and extraordinary sort of casual working arrangements, but people engaged in paid labour. Um, and many uh, of the changes in the economy and some of the changes in labour law uh, quite recently have had an absolutely devastating impact on their working lives, um, in, and in particular because of the uh, impact on their living standards. And I think it's fair to say that Britain's workers must be amongst, uh, certainly in the European Union, the most insecure, unhappy and stressed now. The framework of employment law that we now have, uh, and have always had, in the UK um, ignores, I think, today's economic and workplace realities and is no longer really fit for the 21st century. And if you listen to the um, very, very good presentations we've had earlier on, you can see how they fitted into uh, a workforce that was in large numbers, in particular bits of industry, relatively easy to organise for trade unions because you had them all in one place. So all you needed really was to have perhaps one full-time officer and some elected reps to run employment relations directly with that employer or that group of employers. Um, that no longer really very much exists. Uh, but the model we have of trade unionism, I think, still hasn't really changed very much. And I think one of the reasons that trade unionism is relatively weak in this country is it's actually very, very difficult now for unions to get the funds. Don't forget, unions are funded. They're independent organisations. They're funded by donations from their members um, to support uh, a largely peripheral, not peripheral, that's probably the wrong word, peripatetic uh, group of workers. And for some unions, most of their members now uh, go from here to there to everywhere 
in and out of different unions' areas of uh, strength, and it's actually very, very difficult with little few few resources uh, to service those members on an individual basis, but no real ability in many parts of industry now to serve them on a collective basis. So I think there's a lot to think about um, in that sense. As people have said earlier, our system is heavily based on individual rights, uh, which really are now effectively more or less impossible to use thanks to the introduction of employment tribunal fees. There was a 78% drop in applications to employment tribunals in the year that the fees were introduced, um, particularly for those sorts of cases that tend to be individualised, uh, like sex discrimination, race discrimination, and so on. So coupled with that, that coupled with a succession of restrictive laws that are imposed on trade unions, whose legal basis, if we, as we've heard, was already quite weak, being based on immunities instead of actual solid rights, has led to a very weak system now of protection for our workforce. So at the heart of our proposals in the manifesto is the need to ensure that the voice of Britain's 31 million workers is heard and respected, both in government, in the economy, and also in industry. So we're presenting a manifesto for raising labour standards and improving working conditions for all workers, a manifesto for changing the way in which working conditions are regulated by moving the responsibility for regulation from legislation, statutory legislation in particular, back to collective bargaining. Now that is an absolutely huge challenge and I'll go through why we're doing it um, and what the implications would be for labour law um, in not too long a space of time. We think this will be beneficial to the economy as well as for our 31 million workers. We think there's far too much law around now informed by an ostensible belief out there that every single problem is going to have a legal solution. People leap for their lawyer as soon as they think anything that they might have been entitled to um, has been breached and often that isn't the most sensible way of resolving their own individual problem and it's certainly not a sensible way of getting to the root of some sort of structural injustice in a workplace. It simply doesn't do that. All legislation can do via statutory regulation is set minimum standards which every employer can comply with, uh, in theory anyway, large, small, productive or chaotic, but of course uh, a lot of them don't take any notice of it whatsoever uh, these days because they know there's you know, very little active enforcement to be frightened of. So often regulation is only a tiny step in this country about above having no regulation or, as is popular with the Conservative government, deregulation. And that means that very often those who need the protection the most are quite deliberately excluded uh, or uh, labour law protections are inaccessible due to them due to things like sham employment arrangements uh, and the high costs of enforcement. We've seen a huge rise in the growth of self-employment, but the TUC argued and the IER also argues that many, many, many of these self-employment employed contracts are absolute shams, they're bogus, because for example on a construction site uh, you'll bring in a self-employed electrician who only ever works on that site but is told that because they bring their own tools in uh, and they've got this uh, contract to provide work rather than a proper employment contract, they have none of the basic protections. They've even, the Tories have even removed basic health and safety protection from self-employed workers in many instances. So people, individuals are very vulnerable indeed. So we've argued as well that many disputes in the workplace would be much better resolved in the workplace with effective third-party intervention where required. Uh, and it quite often will be required because an individual worker is weak against the might of, of an employer, as we all know. But the alternative of having reliance on lawyers and tribunals is very expensive and a real drain um, on trade union and employer, for that matter, resources. 
That's not to say that there's no role at all for legislation to protect workers' rights or litigation to defend them, but we're saying that the balance has now been tilted much too heavily in the direction of individual legalistic solutions, and we need to get back to a sort of measure of equilibrium where the statutory rights are there where they serve the interests of the worker best, um, but where collective bargaining would deliver a much better outcome. We want to restore the ability of trade unions to organise to bargain collectively. So the obvious problem, though, with relying on collective bargaining, and we're quite honest about this, as a method of regulating the workplace, is the very low level currently of collective bargaining activity, uh, which is now at its lowest level since before World War I. So we're not take talking about a workforce that's already organised and just needs a bit of legal relaxation in order for it to get running. Um, it simply isn't there anymore, so we have to think about how you rebuild it and how far you need legal intervention to build back the ability of trade unions more easily to organise their members. There are a lot of explanations for the decline um, of trade union membership, uh, and I think one of the most significant, and we've heard about this earlier on, was the withdrawal of meaningful state support from 1980 onwards. So the principal recommendation of our manifesto is that the balance of regulation must be switched from legislation to collective bargaining, but that's absolutely contingent on strong state support for collective bargaining and for trade unions and employers associations on whose shoulders will be a heavy burden of responsibility for actual delivery. So it's a big ask, actually, for the trade union movement and indeed for employers. State support for collective bargaining, though, is only really going to be accepted by a government if they accept also that it's going to be central to their macroeconomic policy. And that's where you have huge difficulties with the Conservative government, who certainly don't think in that way. And work has to be done to ensure that Labour uh, gets that and sees collective bargaining as one of the important planks on which it builds a very different economic policy. So what are the implications for labour law? Well, the implication for our labour law is that it's going to require a much stronger focus on the sort of laws and procedures designed to promote collective bargaining and build some kind of effective machinery within which collective bargaining can take place in a free way, i.e. without the employer getting the upper hand and always being able to control the process. I think you could, I saw, I can't remember if this is Bill Wedderburn or somebody else, described the former institution building under previous governments as administrative coercion. I'm not quite sure the word co coercion works anymore, but perhaps a sort of um, a prompt of voluntary collective bargaining or something like that, a legal prompt. Um, I'm sure lawyers amongst you will have better ideas about the sort of terminology that you could use for that, but you'll see where I'm coming from. Um, and that was the way broadly in which the Ministry of Labour used its political muscle to persuade uh, employers and trade unions to establish the joint industrial councils that you heard about earlier, which set terms and conditions on a multi-employer sector-wide basis, uh, with steps being taken to encourage employers who were not party to those agreements nonetheless to comply with their terms so that you would end up with effectively a rate for pay across, for example, the whole of the printing industry, even though some of the small printing companies didn't actually um, belong to or sign up to the agreement. So it had much wider implications than the actual legal basis on which it was set up. Today, reliance on the administrative power of the state alone isn't going to be terribly effective. I think we've gone too far in the opposite direction. Um, so what we're proposing to make this all possible is a variety of legislative tools, including establishing procedures and determining the legal effects of any agreements made under procedures between trade unions and employers. But we argue that the rewards for that, for the economy, for working people, for industry, would actually be considerable. 
Comprehensive sector-wide collective agreements will create the opportunity to provide solutions to many of the unnecessary problems that now blight British labour law that you've been hearing about. And pieces of legislation that are now susceptible to being torn up, I suspect, under Brexit if we're not careful, things like the transfer um, of undertakings, protection of employees legislation, is phenomenally difficult to understand, um, particularly if you're a trade union officer who doesn't happen to have a legal background. Uh, the agency workers uh, directive, I was part of the team that tried to work with the government on the transposition of that. I think the transposition was faulty, it doesn't work properly. Um, but nonetheless, all these things would be hugely enhanced by reverting to a system where they could be enforced at collective level in the workplace. They also would resolve, I think, some of the current uh, endemic problems with low pay and even the Tories um, by suddenly pushing up the minimum wage, ignoring the Low Pay Commission, by the way, and just statutorily upping the national minimum wage, um, have accepted the impact of low pay on the economy uh, and how nobody's buying anything anymore. People are heavily reliant on state benefits, etc. Uh, and of course, there's no uh, tax benefits from the government in having too many people on low pay. Uh, and there's massive job insecurity, which is not good in in terms of people trying to buy houses, we're all supposed to be reliant on buying our own house, and so on and so forth. What we're saying is under this manifesto, every worker employed on the sector in question would be entitled to standards provided for in the agreements. And we think you would also have to have uh, bargaining level agreements as well underneath that with local councils to ensure that detailed um, attributes of some of the workplaces that you'd be working in are dealt with by people on the shop floor who actually understand how they work. But let's just finish off with our recommendations, which you will find all in here. Um, so yes, we have asked for a Ministry of Labour to be restored. Uh, we think that's the only way to ensure that the interests of workers are represented at government level, at institutional level, and we argue that that should be led by a Secretary of State with a place in the Cabinet. What you do with the Department for whatever it's called now, the Business Energy and Beige, yeah, Beige, Beige. Beige, yeah, and the Department for Work and Pensions is another question, but we certainly feel there should be a, a Ministry for Labour. And that must have a primary responsibility to promote collective bargaining on a multi-employer sectoral basis, working with ACAS, which should have its duty restored to promote collective bargaining as one of the best means of resolving employment disputes. We would also want sectoral employment commissions, as I've said, uh, enterprise-level bargaining, and we would have a system whereby if the worker was covered by a degree, a number of overlapping agreements, which is quite possible given the way in which industry is now organised, they would have the most favourable terms and conditions available applied to them. It's a bit like EU law has a no regression clause, so that would ensure that where you have those loopholes, they would be um, dispensed with, at least that would be the, the idea. I can see there could be some problems with that, but the idea is not a race to the bottom on this with employers competing with unions to set up some sort of arrangement that doesn't offer um, proper conditions. We think the statutory trade union recognition procedure should be revised so that a union is entitled to recognition simply if it can prove that it's got 10% membership. As John and I know very, very well, and others here, it's massively complicated to get statutory recognition rights in this country through the Central Arbitration Committee. You have to go through so many different levels of proving that you've got the members, proving you'd be likely to win a ballot, proving that you can have a ballot um, in certain terms. It's very, very difficult and lots of unions either fall at the first hurdle or the second hurdle or just give the, you know, lose the will to live and don't do it. So that needs a huge amount of reform. Every worker should be entitled to be represented by a trade union collectively or individually on all matters related to employment, even if the trade union isn't recognised. And the current right to be accompanied, a very quaint term, um, by a trade union official or rep should be properly amended so the worker has the right to be represented, which includes the union going into the 
the, the session and being able to speak on behalf of the worker, not simply sitting in there being a, a nice little piece of furniture holding the worker's hand but not able to participate. We would want to have regulatory legislation to retain, as it is now, uh, for example, on pay, on working time, which should include zero-hours contracts, on unlawful discrimination, equality and health and safety. Um, we would like the Low Pay Commission to be renamed the Living Wage Commission, I think for fairly obvious uh, reasons, but calling it the Low Pay Commission doesn't give you a very encouraging view of what its actual aims and objectives are. I think we're nearly there. Uh, steps should be taken to resolve more disputes without recourse to the law, and we would recommend a system of labour inspectors. This is very controversial and was difficult to run past some unions, but a system of labour inspectors like they have in other uh, EU member states who would have the powers to cancel dismissal notices and order reinstatement where they found, after looking into the matter, that the worker had been unfairly dismissed. And that would take unfair dismissal away from the employment tribunals where it's been completely ruined by successive legal judgments to where it was originally when it was first established, uh, where two lay people, as it were, the trade union officer and the HR person, could go through the facts of the matter and the Labour inspector would decide, based on the facts of the matter, whether or not the dismissal was unfair, push away all that complicated and unnecessary overlayering of the law on that. Freedom of association should be changed to strike a better balance between trade union autonomy and trade union democracy. And we've argued that trade union elections should be conducted in accordance with the trade union's own rules and procedures, but those would be overseen um, and capable of being reviewed by the certification officer, who's the little talked about trade union regulator. You need more legislation to stamp out the practice of blacklisting, which has become huge in the construction industry and elsewhere. We've argued that recognised or representative trade unions should have the right to check off facilities on request um, and the reserve powers of ministers relating to facilities introduced by the Wretched Trade Union Act should be repealed. And in fact, we're arguing that the whole Trade Union Act 2016 should just be taken off the statute. But there is nothing useful in there at all for trade unions and it's done absolutely nothing for the economy. It's done nothing for employers. It's one of the biggest pieces of political... I can't even think of a, the appropriate word for it. It's just wrecking. It was a political instrument. It was savaged by the government's own regulatory policy committee. The House of Lords did a brilliant job tearing it apart. It's not fit for purpose and it just needs to be obliterated in its entirety. There's nothing worth saving in it. Nothing. Um, and I think finally, we would argue to give the uh, to set up a new system. This is quite controversial as well. Um, of uh, I can call it a labour court or whatever you like, but bringing together um, what the employment tribunals do on areas like discrimination law, and what bodies like the certification officer and the central arbitration committee do on collective recognition and on trade union rules, and putting them all into the same legal system, taking it away from the rest of the civil justice system. But the quid pro quo for that is that you could argue that some issues like equal pay ought in part to be determined elsewhere in the civil courts uh, because of the nature of equal pay law uh, in the UK. I can go on about that at length if anyone's interested in equal pay, but you can see there's a huge amount that needs to be doing. I'm making it all sound very, very easy, and I'm sure you'll all be able to pick out sort of holes in what we're proposing. Um, but anyway, I think what we're offering um, is a much better system of trade union representation, returning power to workers collectively in the workplace, moving away from individual employment rights back to some kind of legally underpinned in collective rights, proper trade union recognition um, procedures, a decent system of labour law, uh, labour courts. I don't like the word labour court for some reason, but others can tell me why I don't like it or why I should be liking it. Um, and as I say, the absolute repeal of the Trade Union Act. That was a real whistle-stop tour through what's actually a much more erudite and very well-referenced 
book, which I highly recommend that you get hold of. Um, but as you'll see, a lot of that did appear in the Labour manifesto. So I think, you know, if we win the next election, John, I think there's some real hope that we could perhaps go back to where we ought to be with the trade unions and workplaces and the economy and build all this stuff together in a new industrial strategy, not the rubbish that Theresa May's been whittering on about, but a proper industrial strategy. And I think that really could you know, bring about the resurrection of the trade union movement. And I don't think that's too grand a claim, which is desperately needed now. So there we are. Thanks for listening and do buy the book.